All right, well, we are uh, in the very beginning stages of this winter series called The Unexpected. And week number one, we talked about that first domino falling. The first domino to fall in our life that impacts everything else is how we perceive God. And we spoke last week that there are two ways to perceive God. Number one, is he an ominous judge willing and ready to condemn, judge, and ruin our lives when we, when we mess up? That's normally what people believe about God. Or is God more gracious? Is there that unexpected grace that God wants us to experience? And that's what we unlocked last week. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount something that is radically profound. He says this, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, reap, or store away in barns. Basically lazy creatures, right? They're just, they're flying around. Nonsense. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Now listen to what Jesus says. Are you not much more valuable than they? Now we may have read the Sermon on the Mount a bunch. We might have studied it in church. We might have been very familiar with this passage, but at the time, it's the first time in human history that Jesus is revealing a God who cares and values us. The religious mentality says, well, you know, who are we? We are just this tiny speck, you know, one of billions of people floating on this tiny earth, swirling around this incredible galaxy. God's this almighty, perfect God, and who am I? I'm insignificant, I'm small, I'm inconsequential, and I fail, and I fail time and time and time again. Who am I? Well, Jesus says, in the eyes of the heavenly Father, you are valued. And so I start being open to the love of God. I start being open to the grace of God and the goodness of God who's for us, not against us. And Jesus teaches time and time again that God, our heavenly Father, values us. And he wants us to know how much he loves us. And he wants us to know how much he loves not only us, but the whole world and has a vision for where this world is headed. A vision where love is the only law where we are serving one another and caring for one another and nobody is left behind. And then he gave his life on the cross to bear the suffering and the sin of the world. Die for it, pay the penalty so there's nothing between us and God and rising again from the dead to give us new life and eternal life. This is what Jesus is coming to reveal, that God is a heavenly father who loves, who cares, who forgives unconditionally. And that is the most important thing we can build our life on because if we build our life on the unconditional love of God, then we will learn how to love unconditionally. It's a powerful place to be, a powerful place to live. But the reality is that life itself is a performance-driven paradigm. Life is based on performance. That's almost our entire experience throughout life. Even when we're very young, very often we are raised in performance-driven families. You are encouraged and blessed and cared for very well when you're good. But when you're bad, boy, the judgment and the wrath comes on you. We learn how to perform in our own homes. And then, of course, we go to school. Then we get graded on our performance. We get a job. We get paid according to our performance. And then, of course, you come to church, and that's on steroids. Here are the things you have to do. Here are the things you have to believe. And because we use God's name and because uh, we're talking about morality and character and the decisions we make, not only in the outside part of our life, but the inner part of our life, wow, those standards shoot through the roof. And none of us can meet those standards. And when we can't meet standards, what do we do? We pretend. We either disconnect or we pretend. When we don't meet the standards of people around us, we either disconnect from them or pretend. Those, those are the only two options, really. That's just human nature. And so we grow up pretending. Now, some of this is very normal and natural. In fact, there's a name for pretending. It's, it's called sociodramatic play. It's just called pretending, but psychologists, you know, need to put a fancy title on it. Sociodramatic play. 
And, and it begins when we're one, when we're very young, we can't even speak yet, we learn to kind of sit where we are and maybe, you know, if you're a sweet little girl, you grab a dolly and you pretend to be mommy, you know, when you're old, pretend to be mommy. If you're a boy, you take something and you start smashing. So either way, it's sociodramatic play and we do that by ourselves at first. And then you might be put in a nursery. And so you could have one and two-year-olds, and they're doing this right now in our nursery. It's called parallel sociodramatic play, where you're not necessarily playing with each other, but you're playing by yourself with other people around. And you just watch the dynamic of nursery. So you have one, you know, sweet little young girl and playing with a dolly and looking over to the boy next to her, smashing, I smash, I crush. And, you know, that's parallel socio play. You're not playing with each other quite yet. That's big league. But you're playing by yourself with other people. And then you get to the real world, and the real world is called group socio-dramatic play. That's where you're pretending together. That's when it just, get, all heck breaks loose. You know, you're kindergarten, you're in the school playground, and, and one of the, the girls steps up and says, I'm the teacher, you're my students. Well, who made you the teacher? I want to be the teacher. Then you got to figure it all out. It's just totally chaos, right? And the guys are over there playing cops and robbers and whatever else. That's a little easier. It gets a little more dramatic with the ladies at times. And, um, and they're figuring it out, right? That's normal, healthy, socio-dramatic play in groups. It teaches you how to be creative. It teaches you how to solve problems. You know, kind of gets your mind thinking about what you're going to do in the future and be in the future. It's cool, right? Except when that group socio-dramatic play continues on to adulthood. That's when it gets a little, a little dysfunctional. Let me be clear, all of us do it. All of us do it because we all long to be accepted. We all wanna be liked, we all wanna be accepted, which means we can't let people know what's really going on in our life, what's really going on in our head, what's really going on in our heart, what's really going on in our family. So we have to project who we want people to think we are. And what we project is somebody who's gonna be accepted by the group around us. We all do it. Every single one of us are involved in group sociodramatic play, pretend. And that is especially true in church. You walk in the church, the standards are a mile high. The standards are nothing short of perfection and discipline and being correct, right? And, and here, maybe a lot of your friends go to church and, and uh, you, know, you certainly don't wanna be the one over there who everybody's judging and looking at, so we project who we want people to think we are. Group sociodramatic play in church. At some point, you either learn how to get very good at it or you bail. And right now, there are millions and millions of people leaving the church like it's on fire. Why? You, do, you look at every study. It's because of hypocrisy, fake, phony, pretend, judgmental. It's, it's the standard deal. People are running away from the church because it is a group, sociodramatic playground of pretend. And there is something better, right? There's something better. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 7... It says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. What makes God happy? When we accept one another the way Jesus accepts us. Well, how does Jesus accept us? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus goes after the people who were the least, the last, the lost, the rejected, the sinner, the outcast, the unclean, the diseased. That's who Jesus went after. He goes after people who assume they're not accepted. That conclusion's already done, a done deal. They're publicly humiliated, they're publicly shamed, they're already put in some kind of a category as unwanted, unloved, and cursed. Jesus goes after those people and he shows them the full embrace of the Heavenly Father, saying to them, don't you know how valued you are to your Heavenly Father? 
And he proves it to them by loving them, embracing them, and accepting them just as they are. That's the better way of of doing life. That's the better way of doing church, right? Forget the playground. Forget the pretend. Forget having to project something that could be acceptable to others. Let's be an unexpectedly honest community. That is not easy. That is not easy. But that's the journey of today. So last week... We had our first unexpected event during this unexpected series. I gave you my cell number and asked you to text in, why have you felt God was disappointed in you? And I did not know what to expect. Are people actually going to be kind of honest, even though it's an anonymous text? (laughs) So you think, um, am I going to really bear my my soul here to pastor on this text? I had no idea what to expect. 1,118 texts came in during church. 1,118 And just to put the math in it, that's probably a a good quarter of of the church text in a lot of times their deepest, darkest reasons why they felt God was disappointed in them. I'm going to share them all right now (laughs) with names. No names, of course. I don't even know who they are. But um, here's what was said. Of uh, of 1,118 texts, 31 said they felt God was disappointed in them because they didn't read the Bible enough. 20, because they didn't pray enough. 58, didn't meet the expectations of the church community. 341, felt God was disappointed because they didn't follow through on commitments. Now, this can mean all kinds of religious commitments. Commitments to join the church, engage in the church, serve in the church, read the Bible, pray, all the discipline stuff. This is by far the largest category. 341, felt that they disappointed God by not following through on commitments. 55 said they have a weak faith in God, so God is disappointed. 22 have doubts about the Bible, so God must be disappointed. 129 cited sins of the past. Um, 117 talked about the sins of the present, that they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. 227, the uh, second most popular uh, comment, had to do with failing family. And this got very personal. I'm a failure as a father, failure as a mother, failure as a son or a daughter. Uh, 34 said they had affairs, 28, an abortion or abortions. Five said that they had harmed themselves, therefore God was disappointed in them. 31 said that they are addicts. 21 talked about their sexual orientation, disappointing to God. 40 said they have anger issues and are disappointing to God. Again, multiply all these numbers by four and those are just the people who go to Rancho. We're messes, (laughs) all right? Beautiful, beautiful messes, normal people with normal struggles, normal failings, and this normal sense that God must be disappointed in us. One of the most heartbreaking responses were people who cited that bad things happened to them, so they must be punished by God. One said, uh, actually several said, there's nothing going on right in my life, therefore I'm under God's condemnation. Several said they were abused as children and feel guilty about being abused as children. God must be disappointed with them. This is heartbreaking stuff. A couple cited that they have a terrible disease and it must be a punishment that they disappointed God. A few talked about loved ones that are suffering, therefore God must be punishing them. This is heartbreaking and this is normal. It's heartbreaking and it's normal. Of the 1,118 texts that came in, only six said, I've never felt as though God was disappointed in me. That's one half of 1%. And to that, I said, wow, these people 
were either raised in incredibly unconditionally loving homes and incredibly unconditionally loving churches or they're, they're narcissistic psychopaths, e- either one. It's one or the other. And I'm hoping and praying that just, they're so bathed in unconditional love that they've never felt as though God was disappointed in them. But it's normal to feel that way. It's normal to feel that way because all of life is performance-based and so of course we take that right into our relationship with God. As a result of this, church is known for being a very insecure, dishonest community trying to impress each other by being good, spiritual, devoted, and right. This is the expected experience of church. We've got to project what people want. We've got to project what leadership wants. We've got to project what our small group wants. And what do they want? Good, spiritual, devoted, and right. That's what people want. Jesus calls us to have a better community, a community that's not expectedly dishonest, but unexpectedly honest, where we can, over time, as trust is built and and relationships are built and, and the genuine culture of authenticity is felt, we can pull those projections back to the point where people see us as we really are. That's where real friendship happens. That's where real love happens. A projection cannot love another projection. A real human being who's honest can love another real human being who's honest. And Jesus wants us to experience that unconditional love in an unexpectedly honest community. But it's not known for that. It's not known for that. It's known for hypocrisy and being fake. And it's understandable why. It's understandable why. We are hypocritical and fake in terms of our failures because we want to be accepted. We also can be hypocritical and fake even in our faith. There are some things about our faith that people want to talk about but don't feel as though they can because those questions are just maybe too difficult in a normal expected religious environment. I'll give you a couple of examples. These are kind of deep here. Sometimes believing in a good God is very, very difficult. It's just the reality. Obviously, one of the things you know, I do, and it's a great pleasure, is to walk alongside of people who are suffering intensely. And I'm telling you, I walk alongside some folks, and I am kind of praying to God, God, enough is enough. This enough is enough. This person, this family has suffered way too intensely. Enough is enough. They can't take anything else. And the next week, what happens? Something else happens. And I'm telling you, there are moments where you're just like, okay, God, you are good and you are sovereign. You could certainly take care of some business here, but you don't. There's a wrestling that takes place. I've been in parts of the world that are just God-awful messes. I mean, so filled with injustice and human trafficking and slavery and child abuse as normal. You're a good God and a sovereign God, yet so much suffering and evil takes place. This is hard sometimes. Science has disproven dozens of past interpretations about the Bible. There have been hard and fast interpretations about the Bible. How the world came to be, the shape of the world, the movement of the world, the nature of matter, the nature of life, and science has disproven dozens of past interpretations of the Bible. And this sentence is very carefully crafted here. And at some point, we've got to be honest about those things. Are there things that we hold to now that, you know, the world around us and science is saying, hey, listen, I'm not quite sure about that interpretation of the Bible. Are we willing to say, you know what, let's talk about these things? Because this is a big barrier for a lot of people. If we just say, no, Bible says that I believe it, well, we're holding to an interpretation, maybe even an historical interpretation, maybe it's not right. Can we have that discussion without panicking, freaking out and throwing a rock at somebody's face? The way the Bible was put together seems more human than divine. 
spend three minutes looking at the way the Bible was put together, what you'll see is you'll see this very fluid Old Testament collaboration of books over 600 years, and it finally kind of solidified in the Christian world uh, about 100 AD. And then you look at the New Testament. New Testament was a hundreds-year-long period of discussing which books are in, which books are out. There's different versions. And it was a series of councils 350 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ where the New Testament was finally put together. And so you look at that, and and some people look at that and say, that looks and feels like a human effort. Um, Can we have that conversation? Are we allowed to have that conversation? The Bible has some incredibly difficult things to deal with. Of course, throughout the Bible, you have some miracle issues to deal with. Uh, Can we have a discussion about those? The Old Testament in particular has incredible violence, slavery, and genocide. Can we have a discussion? Is that just the Jews' experience, or is that God's mandate? Can we have that discussion? Are we allowed to have that discussion without people freaking out? Are we going to have an unexpectedly honest discussion about faith? Are we going to have an unexpectedly honest discussion about our failures? Or do we have to keep the projection going? And the reality is in church environments, and this isn't just the Christian church, this is religious environments, there's a, just an absolute you know, dedication to being certain. We've got to know truth and be certain about that truth. And I understand that because the world is full of uncertainty. The world is absolutely full of uncertainty. I mean, the things that happen in this world for good or for bad are largely just seemingly random, no rhyme, no, no reason, just stuff happens, right? Circumstances, disease, whether for good or bad, something just happens terribly in somebody's life and good, and there's no rhyme or reason. And so we come to church, we want certainty. Somebody tell me something certain. And so there may be a, a pastor or authority figure using the Bible, teaching the Bible, interpreting the Bible. Okay, I'm going to rest my life on that, and that's it. And so sometimes the doctrines of our childhood and the doctrines of our youth in particular, we are keeping those and we are putting those in our pocket and we, that's not up for discussion. And anybody who questions anything I was taught in church when I was young is wrong. Well, why? I don't want to talk about it. Just is. I have something certain in my pocket and I'm not letting go of it and I'm calling that thing that certain faith. I'm not sure it's faith. Being right and being certain about what we believe has been the obsession of much of the Western church for 500 years and three months. Almost to the day. 500 years and three months. That was the date of the Reformation. When the Reformation started 500 years and three months ago, it started an incredible movement that I would say is largely good. Put the Bible in people's hands, right? Taught people how to read. Really birthed Renaissance and art and science and Western civilization. I mean, it's had some great impact on this world. The Reformation's been amazing, right? In so many ways. We get to study the Bible for ourselves. One of the downsides of the Reformation was an obsession with truth and certainty about the truth. And so we had a quest for truth. And if we seize that truth and unquestioningly hold to that truth, we call it faith. But I'm not sure it is. In fact, being certain about what we believe is not faith in God, It's faith in certainty. This is kind of big. Being certain about what we believe is not faith in God, but faith in certainty. We call faith believing in something without doubting. And that's not the definition of faith. Let me give you an an example here. If we're hanging out, you know, around back uh, here today, and you say, hey, Scott, you know, I've never met your your lovely wife. Uh, Would you describe her for me? 
I'd say, uh, sir, sure. She is uh, five foot six inches. Uh, she has brown hair, brown eyes. She lives at uh, uh, 31767, blah, blah, blah. And her phone number is 951813, blah, 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 blah. And um, there. What are you going to think? Oh, this is really awkward. You're going to back away slowly, find somebody else to talk to. It's like, whoa, that's not good, right? Describing facts about my wife is not really knowing my wife. Is that fair to say? Yet, yet doctrine in church seems to be the prize. Let's believe rightly about God, and that's the prize. And if somebody doesn't believe the way I believe, oh, they're wrong, and are they really saved, and do they really trust the Bible? And it's this whole game about being right. But if you ask me to describe my wife, and, and I said, oh, boy, I, let me talk to you about our relationship and our partnership together and, and our life together. Let me talk to you about how we met and what we have in common and what cool things that we you know, disagree on that, that she's wrong about. What, what are the, you know, how have we moved through uh, challenges? Uh, the kids that we've raised together, our partnership in ministry, that's my wife. You know, here's her, her values and how she loves our kids and cares for our kids and loves people and serves. I mean, now we're talking about my wife. When we talk about God, it's not a list of right things to believe. It's a journey of discovering God and relating with him in the actual real world, right? How my relationship with God impacts my real life and pours over into real relationships, that's God. We cannot reduce faith to being certain about things we believe about God. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Here's another very humbling thing I discovered when I was about 27, 28 years old. Now, brace yourself. I could very well be wrong about a whole ton load of stuff. Early in, in my faith, I was around a lot of influences that was about being right. Study the Bible, be right, be certain, have faith, hold on tight, right? And, and part of my grace awakening was this realization. I could very well be wrong about a whole ton load of stuff. And that was humbling, even humiliating. I was a full-time pastor, Bible teacher, and, you know, hey, I'm teaching what I was taught because that's what you do. This is what you believe, be certain about it, don't doubt, don't question, everybody who does doubt and does question isn't as faithful as you and you put that in your pocket and don't waver. And that's what I did in ministry. So about 27, 28 years old, that started kind of loosening up and I realized I could be wrong. And I'm telling you, the journey from this to this is a long way. And it's very painful, very, very painful. Here's a book, uh, a quote from a book called The Sin of Certainty by Peter Enns. Read it if you dare. It's gnarly. Here's what it says. The preoccupation with holding on to correct thinking with a tightly closed fist is not a sign of strong faith. It is, in fact, it hinders the life of faith. Because we are simply acting on a deeper, unnamed human fear of losing the sense of certainty. If I hold on without wavering to what other people told me to believe, I'm certain. Now, whether that's founded on anything or not, it doesn't even matter. I'm certain about something. And the road from this to being uncertain about what I believe and what I've been told is big because there are very few things certain in our lives. And so if we believe certain things about God that we're certain about, that's more comfortable. Whether we're right or wrong, it doesn't even matter. We're certain about something and we feel like there's something solid under our feet. To think I might be wrong is a really tough thing because now there are even less things to be certain about in life and it creates a little more anxiety and perhaps a little more fear. But I'm telling you what it does to increase humility and increase love is huge. And if we can become more gracious and more humble, we could be wrong about things. 
then imagine the connections that we're going to make with other people who we used to think of as wrong. Now we look at them as, oh, human beings, also on a journey with God and a journey in life and a journey with each other. The humanity that rises as a result is huge, and that's unexpected honesty, especially in a church. Check this one out. We know that making and worshiping a very certain physical image of God is called idolatry. If I spent all day yesterday uh, in my uh, little wood shop there uh, whittling a, a, a graven image and I put it on this platform and said, we Rancho worship this. From now on, we worship this graven image, right? This very certain graven image. All the governing pastors that go to Encore uh, will rise up from their seats, come to the stage, lift me up and drop me off outside and say, thank you for your service. That's idolatry. You can't make a, a certain image and call it God. However, we make a very certain doctrinal image of God and call that faith. There's not much difference. Here's exactly who God is. Here's exactly what he's like. Here's exactly what he demands. Here's what he wants. Here's how he wants to be worshiped. Here is God all wrapped up for us. Believe that. That's just as much as of an idol a put-together God made in our image. We made up that God just as much as we would have made up this wooden idol. It's the same thing. We've made a God that we particularly like and we push that God forward. What's the difference between an idol of doctrine and an idol of wood? Here's what God wants for us. I believe God wants us to experience a deep and powerful journey of discovering God not pushing forward rigid certain doctrines, a deep and powerful journey of discovering God and a life that enjoys a profound and ever-deepening relationship with him. Doesn't that sound really cool? Not doctrine peddling. We're right, they're wrong. Powerful journey of discovering God and a life of enjoying him and deepening relationship. Don't you just want to hug and kiss this TV? Mm, this, is, oh, this is so good. This is so good. This is so fun. This is really, really cool. This is unexpected honesty. This is an unexpected journey of grace and love. This is a church that's a learning community, not a doctrine peddler, a learning community. And let me tell you this. I am teaching right now against what I taught 15 years ago in the same church. And I guarantee you 15 years from now, I'm going to be teaching against some things I'm teaching you right now. And that's okay. That's okay. We're a learning community. We're, we're holding our faith with an open hand, saying, listen, I believe some things about God. And some things we believe about God, hey, we're, we're going to hold pretty tightly to, like the gospel. The gospel that, that God loves us, that he sent his son Jesus. That Jesus expressed the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of love and grace and mercy, that he laid his life down to take the failures and sins of the world upon himself. And now there's nothing that separates us from God. That he rose again to give us new and eternal life. I mean, there's some things, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold to. That's, that's the foundation under my feet. But everything else, you know, really is a journey of faith. It's a journey together with you all in a wonderful way to lead us to an ever-deepening love of God. Love of his word and love of each other. Jesus had an enemy, uh, the Pharisees, right? Those poor Pharisees, we are dumping on them all the time. Well, Jesus started it, so let's just, we're blaming him. Uh, these were the people who had all kinds of lists of rules and all kinds of doctrines that we have to believe. And Jesus is screaming at them uh, in the temple in Matthew chapter 23 in public. He is eviscerating them with his words and sarcasm and just biting language. He is tearing them down. So let's just do that. Here's what Jesus says with sarcasm in his tone. 
you must be careful to do everything they tell you, right? And they're saying, well, they tell us a lot. 6,000 lists of things to do and hundreds of doctrines to believe. They are pushing a lot. Jesus says, hey, you gotta be careful to do everything they say, right? Oh yeah, they're gonna come after us. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's the religious hypocrite. Happens all the time. Everything is done for people to see. Religious leaders are the worst at projecting. They're the absolute worst. I know a ton of them. I is one of them. We're the worst. Now, I want to be sympathetic. I understand why. It, there, it is a lonely world, and I have experienced this lonely world. Not now, but certainly in the past, and it's real. The lonely world of people looking to you for their doctrine and for their, you know, moral codes and all that stuff, right? And you're, you're by yourself. You don't really, can, can a senior pastor be totally honest with his team about his struggles and doubts and fears and failures? Probably not. They're bored. Other pastors in town? I know a ton of pastors, and they are the most lonely people on earth. And they are projecting exactly what they want other people to see. And it's a difficult thing because you know it. And not only are you projecting, but you are basically communicating to your congregation, you've got to do the same thing. We're all in it together. We're projecting, projecting. Everything is done for people to see. And so religious leaders, as a result, tend to tie up heavy burdens because not only are we wanting people to be holy and right, we want to be holy and right. So when we're teaching, we're basically teaching to us, trying to convince ourselves to be better, righter, gooder. I mean, right? we, we are so desperate to live as we've projected ourselves to be that we preach and preach and preach and really we're just hammering ourselves. Happens all the time. So easy. It's so natural. Jesus is inviting religious leaders here, but all of us, to live in unexpected honesty, to not have to project and to say, you know what, we've all got false flaws and failures, we're all human beings. And really, when you look at the Bible, there is no reason that we could see in the Bible to project something fake. Let's look at the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Bible. These are the people that God used to build this incredible faith that we enjoy today. Adam and Eve, who in the Bible are the characters that represent all of humanity, they failed incredibly. Noah was a drunk. Abraham had a mistress. Sarah gave her husband to another woman. Lot surrounded himself with evil people. Jacob was a lying schemer. Rachel was a thief. Moses murdered. Aaron built an idol in disobedience. Miriam was a gossip. Eli was the worst parent probably ever lived. David had an affair, then murdered. Uh, he was also a terrible father. Dozens of the 150 Psalms in the middle of your Bible record questions and doubts about God. Ecclesiastes is a book of depressive doubt. Solomon had more than a thousand sex partners. Jonah ran from God. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was a burnout. John the Baptist was a homeless eccentric. Matthew was corrupt and stole from his own people. John was self-righteous. Martha was stressed and anxious. Peter was a coward with a hot temper. The disciples ran away in the middle of the night at Jesus' arrest. Thomas doubted. John Mark failed in ministry. Paul was a murderer who wrote half the New Testament. And we have to pretend. <laughs> we don't have to pretend nothing. This is who God built this faith on. God used his love and grace to, to take people right where they were and not make them better, but just use them in love to change the world. It's really astounding. Now, what about Jesus? 
Well, we can't say Jesus failed per se, but Jesus struggled. And Jesus struggled intensely. He struggled intensely. One of the most humanizing moments in Jesus' life is when he is by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the cross. And you know the story, his face dripping with blood because of the vessels in his, in his head were bursting in anxiety and fear. He bowed with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible. He is begging his heavenly father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Then he says in faithfulness, I want your will to be done, not mine. And the heavenly father said to his only begotten son, no, he did not answer the prayer of his son. And as Hebrews said, pushed him forward to suffer. As Jesus was suffering on the cross, what's, what's one of the things he shouted out? My father, why have you forsaken me? This is the real suffering and struggle and wrestling of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We can wrestle, people. We can struggle. We can doubt. We can be afraid. We can go through seasons of unbelief. We can go through seasons of rebellion, right? We can make mistakes. Not that we want to and running into it, but we have a God who's a father who loves us despite it all and wants us to experience his love, not just from him, but with each other in community together, community together. That's really what changes lives, right? Love changes lives. Love transforms. So is it possible that we could say that, you know, maybe the goal isn't perfect holiness and faith without struggle? Jesus didn't have a faith without struggle. He struggled intensely. He was not only begging God to take away this cup of suffering, he was begging his disciples to be with him. He's begging them. In the middle of the night, they're dozing off in the middle of the night, and he's saying, Would you please stay up and be with me? I need your help. I need your support. I need your prayers. This is Jesus. Desperately needed a community around him to help him in his struggles. If Jesus needs it, I need it. You need it. We need to be supported. The goal isn't perfect holiness and faith without struggle. That's kind of the expected church world. The unexpected church world is this. This is unexpected honesty. Maybe the goal is walking in humility. Allowing God to love us and shape us and use us to advance his cause of love in this broken world. This is very cool. Let's do that. And, and I know the path ahead takes some time. It takes some trust. It takes some courage. Bunch of our church is connected in small groups and good friendships. Bunch of us. Something like 55, 60% of the church is really engaged groups, serving teams, friendships, just really sharing life with, with each other. It's great. There's a whole bunch of us who may have been a little wounded by church. You might have that projected life put up, you know, and you're in a safe world. You're hurting on the inside. Maybe your family's hurting on the inside, but you're projecting something different. I know it's going to take time. It's going to take some courage to say, all right, maybe now's the time. Go on the app, go on the website, sign up for a small group, and just walk in that room. Maybe it's a class here on Wednesday, a group here on Wednesday, small group in a home, a serving team. I'm just going to walk in, and slowly I'm going to make some friends, and slowly I'm going to share my life. And there might be one point, could take years, but at some point, you will not be projecting something you want other people to see and accept. You might actually be able to live your life in relationship with people living their life, and you see it all, and you love each other, and you're with each other, and you're walking this life of faith together. Some of you are thinking, no way that's possible, especially in church. It is possible. 
I have the privilege, my wife and I, of living that in our own friendships, and it took us a long time to get to the point where we are making good friends in the church that we lead. And you're talking about risk? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, my wife and I have had the conversation. Do we join a small group? Because what if we're honest and vulnerable in that group, and those people leave the church or tell our story to other people? What? I mean, there's risk. And we're doing it, and we're having a great time. And we could get hurt. But that's the journey of life. That's the journey of faith. It's the journey of community together. So why don't we do that, huh? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and grace. You are a heavenly father, just as Jesus taught and just as he lived, a God of love, a God who accepts us just, when we, just as we are where we are, a God who is not insecure, looking to condemn, but a heavenly father who just wants us to know that we are loved, a God who's interested in blessing us not interested in being blessed by us. And God, we know that um, we are prone to being performance-driven, especially in church, and that's been the culture of, of much of your church over the millennia. But uh, God, we want to live into the community that Jesus envisioned, a community that enjoys gathering together and building friendships in large venues and in small groups and in homes. And as Acts uh, 2.46 says, just being... Um, being a great joy for each other, having fun together and eating together and, and living in this unexpected honesty. God, if there are people a little bit afraid and apprehensive to, to join a group, get plugged in, get connected, God, I understand. And, and at the right time, would you give them uh, the vulnerability and courage to get connected? And maybe today's the day. And would you allow this church to live uh, as the community that you envisioned, not having to pretend or project, but being honest, being vulnerable, living in unexpected honesty so that we can express the kind of love to each other that you give to us through Christ Jesus, your son. In his name we pray, amen.